Beloved, I invite you now to open your Bibles that we might read together from Titus chapter 3. We read from Titus chapter 3 in connection with our confessional reading this afternoon from Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll read from Titus chapter 3. As we do so, I'd like to point to your attention in particular to the verses 4 through 8, which will feature prominently in this afternoon's sermon. Beloved, the word of the Lord. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be vigilant to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Beloved, I invite you now to read Lord's Day 7. You might find it on page 523 of the Book of Praise. Beloved, we confess the following to be a faithful summary of God's Word. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, is it a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are the articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This beloved, we confess. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the Bible. So why do we have creeds and confessions? We have the Word of God. So why do we bother to put so much effort into teaching the youth of our church and new members of our church, the Heidelberg Catechism, or other confessional documents that were drawn up by men. We can read words inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. Why should we spend such time reading the uninspired words of men in our worship services? Or use those uninspired documents to to shape the preaching of God's word as we're doing this afternoon. Those are fair questions for us to consider, beloved. As Reformed Christians, we hold the Bible in the highest regard. We believe that this entire book is, to quote the Apostle Paul, given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It contains all that we need to know in order to be saved. In this book, in this inspired collections, the words of prophets and apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have truth from God. So why don't we declare in our Canadian Reformed churches that we will hold to no creed but Christ, as you will hear in many other places. Why do we not say that the the word of God, which is all about Jesus Christ, the word of God, is all that we need? Now, why don't we simply ask people at their profession of faith if they believe in the word of God? Why do we add summarized in the confessions? Why do we ask parents if they confess the doctrine of the Old and New Testament summarized in the confessions when they present their children for baptism? My beloved, in your sister church in Grand Valley, we've been going through the catechism and we've been considering various lies and errors which you might encounter in the world and the church. And we see how the catechism helps us to to refute such things. The statement, no creed but Christ, it isn't a, a heretical statement, but it is a foolish one. It often comes from a a genuine desire to avoid needless controversy or unnecessary pain inside the bride of Christ. But sadly, 
It so often results in an abundance of false teachings and and heresies, which are ultimately far worse for the people of God and the health of the church. So we have creeds and confessions, beloved, so that Christ will be properly known and worshipped and adored. Because we have seen time and time again that without them, errors crop up and abound. But not only that, beloved, I also hope to show you this afternoon that even in the early church, as even in the time of the, the New Testament, the church had, in their own way, creeds and confessions that Christ would be properly known and worshipped and adored. So, beloved, I proclaim God's word, or what God's word teaches us about creeds and confessions using this theme. Refuting no creed, but Christ. Look first at the importance of Christ. Second, the importance of creeds. Generally speaking, beloved, let's say that salvation requires a personal knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, there are some limited exceptions. We believe on the basis of the covenant that that God will will save the children of believers who die in infancy, for example, or at an extremely young age. We believe on the same basis that that individuals who may lack the the mental capacity to fully grasp or express the, the truths of the Christian faith for themselves will nevertheless be received in grace in Christ. But generally speaking, salvation, we might understand, is, is something that generally kind of follows a confession, a personal statement of faith. The believer saying, I hold to this truth. Now the Apostle Paul, he, he told the Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We aren't automatically saved by Christ because he came. The suffering of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things do not automatically lead to the forgiveness of our sins and and grant each and every one of us salvation. The Catechism says, are all men then saved by Christ as they perish through Adam We say no, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. In order to to be saved, we are to believe certain things concerning Jesus Christ. We are to have knowledge of him and the things that he has done. Now consider how Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy. Says to him, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now these are are statements of faith which members of the church were expected to believe concerning Jesus Christ. It isn't that we should simply say, Jesus is Lord, 
and God raised him from the dead. No, we need to have an understanding of what that means. You know, which Jesus are we talking about? It was a fairly common name back in the first century. What does it mean that he is the, the Lord Jesus? Now, that was a, a fairly common way to refer to someone. You'd, you'd call someone Lord if they were of a, a higher social status than you. But what does it mean that God raised him from the dead? Is he not God himself? Why did he have to die in the first place? Why does it matter that he rose from the dead? The briefest of statements is not what we are to to strive for when it comes to to Christian knowledge. And I get it. We we live, we might say, in an age of of Twitter and, and Instagram in which people communicate using shorter and shorter numbers of words. I regularly see people end their, their longer online posts with TL, semicolon, DR. No, too long, didn't read. Here's a, a short summary of, of what I was saying for all the people who don't want to read through paragraphs. You know, today, so often we want information that is, that is fast, that is easy to digest, easy to understand. You know, at times, you might say, the the Bible accommodates that. The Bible gives us big truths and, in short, very easy to understand snippets. You know, sometimes you get these these wonderful, easy-to-memorize verses, which which sum up the story of God's infinite grace and, and mercy. And I suspect even some of the youngest children among us can could easily memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A short sentence, but, but such richness, such truths. You know, the Bible also challenges us to recognize that, that those sh- short statements in where they're only a, a window into to bigger truths and bigger concepts that are also being revealed to us. When Jesus rose from the dead and, and walked with, with two of his disciples to the town of Emmaus, we're told that beginning at Moses, And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now we shouldn't have a a short, pithy understanding of who Jesus is. We shouldn't aim to just kind of know the bare minimum or agree on the bare minimum. We should desire to know Jesus as fully and completely as possible. We have to search the scriptures that we might know the the great Savior that we have been given. For it is in that that we grow and we flourish in faith in him. Now when the catechism talks about what we ought to believe to be saved, when it talks about true faith, it states in the first place that true faith is a, a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. We accept all of it and mine all of it for his riches. 
As believers who who know that we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we should have a, a desire to then know and understand him to the very best of our ability, to have a clear understanding of why and how he has come to rescue us and save us and redeem us. Now consider how the Apostle Paul speaks to to Titus in Titus chapter 3 concerning salvation. Now he doesn't just say, Christ has saved us. Although presumably he could have simply written that. No, he writes to, to Titus, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified in his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That, beloved, is a a robust explanation of how our God has brought about our salvation through the actions of all three persons of the the Trinity. That is a statement that you could reflect upon, that you could have a whole sermon series on. Not only that, it is also, we might note, a confessional or a creedal explanation. For Paul follows it up, stating, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. See, the, the saying which Paul refers to, it's that, it's that whole long sentence concerning our salvation running in verses 4 through 7. In calling it a a saying, Paul indicates that it's a a statement which was highly known and highly taught in the churches. It wasn't just something that Paul kind of came up with on a whim. No, the saying in in Titus 3 is the the biblical equivalent, we might say, of what we confess in Lord's Day 7. Not only to others, but also to me, God has granted Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace for the sake of Christ's merits. This face, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by by the gospel. Now you can lay many parts of of Titus chapter 3 over top of those words from Lord's Day 7. And now you might respond... Well, if the Bible has some convenient creeds or or confessional statements, why can't we just use those? Why do we need statements drafted by men when we have statements drafted by God? Well, because, beloved, we are sinful and weak in our faith and in our thinking. Because we have seen in the history of the church that ungodly people are capable of twisting the words of Scripture and misleading the church into heresies and errors. And as the clearest possible example of this, we only need to consider the the Arian controversy. The Arian controversy was something that that happened in the the 300s, 300 years after the, the time of Christ. This was due to the the teachings of a a well-respected deacon in the early church named Arius. He was a deacon in the church of Alexandria. 
Now, Arius was, by all accounts, a learned and pious man. And, you know, Arius, he believed that Jesus was someone worthy of divine honor, of addressing as, as God. He said he was the most important of all God's creatures. But he said Jesus is a, a creature rather than a creator. Arius would say there was a time when Jesus was not. We would say he denied the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And if you think, well, shouldn't they just open up your Bibles and see, hey, there, clear as day, Jesus is God. It says so in so many places. Well, Arius and his followers were masters at emphasizing all those Bible verses which emphasize Jesus' humanity. Those verses in which Jesus speaks as the the Son of God who willingly subordinates himself to the the will of the Father. Then Arius and his followers would would downplay and explain away all the texts in which Jesus is presented as almighty, eternal God. And although, beloved, the vast majority of the early church recognized that Arius was wrong— There were many influential individuals who did not. And it caused great discord and suffering in the church. And you can look in the history of the church and you see see different church leaders exiled for times. You see churches splitting up and and breaking apart because of this great controversy. So how did the church respond? Well, it responded with the Nicene Creed that we heard earlier. At the councils of first Nicaea and then Constantinople, the church adopted that creed that we have now in our book of praise in order to to defend the pure gospel, to defend the teaching of the church. And they bound one another to the words of men in order to preserve the glory due to God. In an ideal world, beloved, we wouldn't need creeds or confessions. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world in which many are inclined to to read the scriptures in whatever fashion suits them. In whatever fits their biases or their philosophies or their interests. Rather than reading it in a way that reflects the entirety of God's word reading it in a way in which they place themselves under Scripture and its authority. But in order that we might know who Christ is and understand what he has done, it is proven necessary to draw up and hold ourselves to these human summaries of the faith concerning the divine truths which God has revealed. This brings us to our second point, the importance of creeds. Now, beloved, the the statement, no creed but Christ, it isn't just a concern when it comes to the the health of the church or or because of things that have have happened in the past in church history. Now, I also will tell you that it ignores the practice of the New Testament church from the very beginning. As we've already noted before, talking about Titus 3, the the early church had sayings or or statements of faith which members of the church were expected to know and trust. 
And the Bible itself includes a number of what you might call proto-creeds, summaries of the faith that the apostles were spreading and teaching as part of their work. Let's look at a few of these together. I'd invite you at this time, beloved, to, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 3 through 8. If you look in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, we have the Apostle Paul saying, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, sorry, what I also received. In other words, Paul is saying that he's prioritizing the, the following words when he went out teaching the gospel. Namely, what follows, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also. It's by one born out of due time. See, what we have in these verses, beloved, is essentially a a statement regarding the reliability, the the trustworthiness of the resurrection. Reflecting the fact that, that Paul himself saw his earthly ministry as one driven very much by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, if you look at Paul's speeches throughout the Testament, throughout the New Testament, especially in the the book of Acts, what you see oftentimes is that he comes to the the pinnacle of his argument by discussing the resurrection. Furthermore, in his letters to to Timothy and Titus, Paul references a a number of sayings. The early church appears to have put deliberate effort into writing and, and learning simple summaries of the faith. Now, Titus chapter 3, which we read, is one of those. And Titus, he says in Titus 3 verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. But this is not the only place where Paul speaks of sayings. So if you turn in your, your Bibles to, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, if you look there, 1 Timothy 1 Verse 15, you'll see Paul write, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Then move forward a a couple chapters to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. There, Paul writes to Timothy, But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Now in the second letter to Timothy, Paul continues to reference such sayings. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, This is a faithful saying. 
For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, throughout the, the pastoral letters, which were, were letters written by Paul to, to his spiritual co-workers, Timothy and, and Titus, letters which are believed to have been written towards the end of, of Paul's earthly life and ministry, he references these, these sayings which summarize the essential messages of the Christian faith. No, we don't get a a chapter on the the sayings of the early church, but it's made clear to us that even back then, even when the apostles were still with them, the early church was taking time to to standardize and and formulate ways in which to, to present the gospel. That all the members of the church could be on the same page when it came to what their faith was all about. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we confess that a Christian ought to believe all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. Then it goes on to explain that these articles are those of the Apostles' Creed. And on the one hand, we might find that a bit troublesome. How can we refer to, to words which aren't even directly found in Scripture? But on the other hand, we might note that the apostles themselves were constantly summarizing the Christian faith and teaching people these short summaries regarding the the key doctrines of their new faith. They didn't, for instance, just tell them, well, just read the Old Testament, which you have. That's all about Christ. That's all you need. No, they gave them new statements to fully encapsulate things. Now, there's no evidence, beloved, that the Apostles' Creed was written directly by the Apostles. It certainly reflects the faith of the early church. We know, for instance, that the words of the Apostles' Creed reflect words which were consistently spoken at at Christian baptisms by the second century. Now, these are very much words, beloved, confessed by, by early believers. Even those coming to the the Christian faith at a time when the church was still widely persecuted, widely ridiculed in the might or in the face of the powerful Roman Empire. The early church didn't simply say, well, let's just find a nice passage of Scripture. They thought in these articles, they, they best summarize what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. At a time, we might know, when, when Christians were without worldly power, when they represented the very small minority striving to, to overcome a society which was also hostile towards them. Now, the articles of the Apostles' Creed might not be inspired in a direct manner. We trust that they do give us a godly framework for understanding all that was written by the Apostles' Another inspired writers. There has always and always will be a need for the church to summarize what is most central in the Bible, to defend with accuracy the message concerning our salvation, 
and to teach the next generation, to, to give them a framework through which they might understand all the scriptures for themselves. And so while we hold ourselves to words which the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down in the Bible, and we treat those as of first importance, let us also recognize that there is great value in the writings of men who were not inspired, but who were members of the the Spirit-filled church, and who did respect the Scriptures when they strove to, to summarize what God had said. God has given us everything necessary for salvation in the Bible. But his church has often benefited from those writings which godly individuals have put together in an effort to promote his glory and explain the truths that he has laid out. Amen.